This morning we are reading from Deuteronomy 30, 1 through 10. And when all of these things come upon you, the blessings and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where your Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I have commanded you today, with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the utmost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and more numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul, that you may live. And the Lord your God will put all of these curses on your foes and your enemies and those who persecute you. And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all of his commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all of the works of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your cattle, and in the fruit of your ground. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you, as he took delight in your fathers, when you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in the book of the law, when you turn to the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Mary Hannah. Well, as you go to your seats, we're actually going to be in Joshua chapter 5 this morning. Uh, you might wonder why uh, we read Deuteronomy 30 instead of Joshua 5. And uh, there are going to be times uh, which, where we will read, as Mary Hannah did, uh, complementary text to what we're studying or supplemental text to what we're studying. And so as we go through Joshua 5 this morning, I hope you'll be able to even recall what we just heard from Deuteronomy 30 and hear uh, some of the partial fulfillment that we find in Joshua 5 of what Mary Hannah just read to us from Deuteronomy 30. As you are opening the Word of God and turning to Joshua chapter 5, let me go to the Lord in prayer and we'll get started here in a minute with preaching the Word. Father, thank you so much that we can call upon your name and that you hear us and you respond to us. Thank you for gathering us as your people this morning. Uh, we, we pray that you would be honored by everything that we think, sing, speak, read. Uh, we, we want to dedicate our whole lives to you, uh, that we are set apart for you and your service. Uh, so I pray that you would, Spirit, uh, take the words that I'm speaking and send them forth into the hearts of your people and allow them to have all the more affections for Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, I think uh, uh, as we consider uh, just what a church service is, uh, especially if we consider what a church service is and feels like for maybe someone who is new to church, uh, I would gather that 
the, the most unusual part of a church service from an outsider is probably baptism and the Lord's Supper. Uh, so when someone comes in from a non-church experience, they're probably expecting, you know, sitting in uh, seats like you are and listening to someone and even expecting that uh, you would be singing songs. Uh, but then sometimes we have a, a trough up here with water and people are in swim trunks and there are towels. Uh, and so you can imagine when that happens that, that there's a bit of a, a disconnect or a bit of curiosity. What is this? And maybe even later on when we take the Lord's Supper, there's a bit of a curiosity over why would we spend time taking just a little bit, like a crumb of bread and, and, a, and a brief little drink of juice or wine. Why would we do that? And so you can, you can imagine that for someone from the outside, this, that might be, those are the two features of a church service that could be a bit unusual. Uh, well, if we think that's unusual, then we would really think it would be unusual in our text this morning uh, because uh, we're going to be uh, in on a ceremony where thousands of men are being circumcised. <laughs> and, and so we could be thankful for the, the cup of juice and the, and the little crumb of bread this morning. Um, we're going to talk about what all of this means in Joshua 5. Uh, we have uh, signs of God's covenant with his people that we want to unpack uh, this morning. And so we will do that. Um, I want us to remember as we have been studying through the book of Joshua over the past few weeks, um, as we studied chapters 1 through 4, we talked about uh, that uh, we would never write the story this way. In fact, we would probably read most, if not all, the Bible and say that, that we would never write a story like this. We could never imagine a more beautiful story, but a story that, that has some, some twists and turns and, and things that are unexpected. Uh, so you remember we talked about, uh, as we studied the first four chapters of Joshua, that, that the reason that we wouldn't write the story this way is because we, just, we know these people have longed to get into the promised land for so long. Why don't they just go? Uh, but instead, we have this build up through the first four chapters of Joshua where God's people are uh, finding themselves uh, with a new leader in Joshua. They are hearing the commands of God. They are saying they're going to obey everything that God is commanding them through Joshua. Uh, we see the preparation uh, to cross the river, uh, which, take, which took several days. We last week uh, saw through the text in chapter 4 that they crossed the river and then they took times to stack stones and remembrance, but we would just not expect uh, that, it, that we would find ourselves writing the story that way. And so as we get into chapter 5, we're actually getting into a new section of Joshua because the folks are in the promised land. The people of Israel have made it across the Jordan, so they're finally in the promised land. Now, how you and I would write the story is immediately we, we would go to Capture the land. Like there are enemies of God in the land, so let's go get the land. Let's take the land uh, that God has promised us. But what we're going to see today is that there is, again, a, a little bit of a, 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 a detour to that plan. In fact, that's not at all what God has in mind for his people as we look at the text today. In fact, there's more waiting that is going to be taking place. And, and the reason that there is waiting before we get to the battle of Jericho, which is next chapter, uh, the reason that there is waiting is because once again, what is on full display is God's desire for his people to be obedient. This is what he is after. He's after the hearts of his people. And so obedience to God's word is shown to be so vital, so vital in what God is doing here uh, through his people in giving them the land. 
And so these uh, are accounts of further obedience of this new generation of Israelites. So again, we've said throughout uh, our study, in fact, we titled the whole series here in Joshua, Loyal to His Word. We've been seeing over and over again that God is indeed loyal to His Word, and that as God is loyal to His Word, we become people of truth, hope, and steadfastness because God's promises never fail. We become people of truth, hope, and steadfastness. That's actually part of our mission statement here at City Church, that we desire to make and grow disciples in Christ that are basking and that are people of truth, hope, and steadfastness. And that's exactly what the desire is for the people of God at this time as well, that God keeps his promises He's kept his promise to raise up Joshua. He's kept his promise to his people by having them cross the Jordan River. Again, last week we saw them stacking stones in remembrance of God's work in parting the waters of the Jordan River. And now they are in the promised land. And so if you're taking notes, I want to give you the main idea of this morning's message. And if you happen to pick up one of our announcement sheets on the back of the announcement sheets, you can take notes and you'll see right there that the main idea is after crossing comes cowering, cutting, and celebrating. Maybe not exactly what we were thinking, but cowering, cutting, and celebrating. Let's Think about what those three things mean, and let's do that first by looking at Joshua 5, verse 1. So let me read verse 1. It says this, As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. Here's point number one this morning. God's opponents cower, reveal, revealing their melted hearts. God's opponents cower, revealing their melted hearts. Now, I know this is Valentine's week. When I say melted hearts, I do not mean the lovey-dovey, like, oh, that's so heartwarming and melting. I just love it. This is not what the Word of God is showing us in terms of melted hearts, the way melted hearts is used here actually should sound a bit familiar to us because it's exactly what Rahab said, if you remember, in chapter 2, that she had described that her people in Canaan, when they had heard of God drying up the Red Sea and how Israel had defeated the Egyptians and how Israel had defeated two kings on the east side of the Jordan River, that they had melted hearts. And what melted hearts means is that they were utterly terrified that the enemies of God in the land were utterly terrified and their hearts had melted. And so now, with the drying up of the Jordan River and, and the people of God west of the Jordan in their land, even closer, the Canaanites and the Amorites cower even more in fear. They're even more in terror because the people of God have made it into the land. Now, I've, I've said this uh, a few times that uh, this part of Joshua is another installment in the great Exodus narrative, in the great Exodus story that many of us are maybe even more familiar than the book of Joshua because we've just hear about it and read about it and it's been in pop culture and media longer, Moses bringing his people across the Red Sea. But 
Uh, If you read in the book of Exodus chapter 15, and if you want to do that later, I would invite you to do it. After the people cross the Red Sea in the book of Exodus, they sing a song of thanks. They sing a song of thanksgiving to God for bringing them across into, uh, from the Egyptians who were destroyed in the Red Sea. And they say in that song that they know too that the Canaanites would be destroyed one day. The people of God have known that this day was coming. They, of course, knew that God is a God that keeps his promises. He's brought them into the promised land. And along with that, they know that the enemies of God will cower in fear and be destroyed. Now, I think think it's really important for us to keep in mind as we begin to study, especially the next several chapters of Joshua, that this does deal with the Canaanites being devoted to destruction. The enemies of God will be destroyed. But, but it's important to know that this is, not a, this is not a petulant God who has randomly wiped out these people. These people are not morally neutral. Uh, the, the, the people in Canaan are wicked. They are wicked people who have done wicked things for uh, hundreds and hundreds of years. And God has actually in his forbearance for hundreds and hundreds of years uh, seen this wickedness. His wrath has been building up. He's desired for repentance from their sin and yet they have not repented. Their wickedness has accumulated and God is finally acting justly to punish them. Now, some will read the the book of Joshua and they'll read the accounts that we're going to get into over the next several weeks and they'll they'll say that this is some type of ethnic cleansing, that God is is, is ordaining ethnic cleansing. He's wiping out uh, these certain races and we, we know that's not the case. One of the main reasons that we know that's not the case is Rahab. We studied her a few weeks ago. Rahab and her family were saved This is not ethnic cleansing. This is evil nations refusing to turn from their evil, knowing that God's wrath was set against them. And they know, and they cower, and and they're in terror, but instead of repenting, they just cower in fear with melted hearts. Now, for us today, the, the kingdom of God does not advance just like it does here in Joshua 5. So we are, we are not called as believers of God to, to, uh, into a military campaign. We don't take uh, uh, cities by force. But instead, the, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed sown in humility. But, but what does that mustard seed do? It grows. It grows over a period of time into a huge tree. So we don't use a sword that we would hold in our hands. We use the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God to push back darkness. That's what it looks like for us today. But make no mistake, friends, that today the enemies of God, Satan and his realm, still cower in fear. It's still happening today. We'll talk more about this in a few, but I want to show us that the rest of Joshua 5, actually the majority of chapter 5, talk about what God's people are doing as their enemies are cowering in fear, as their enemies have melted hearts, the people of God are preparing by being obedient. 
First, we see the men of Israel were circumcised by Joshua. And we're told why uh, down in verse 4. So skip down to verse 4. God has commanded Joshua to circumcise the men of Israel. And in verse 4, it says this. And the reason why Joshua circumcised them, all the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all of the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. Verse 6, for the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. So what is, what is happening here? The previous generation had been disobedient and did not circumcise their sons as God had commanded. But now, Joshua has been commanded to circumcise these men. And we see immediately that Joshua obeys the Lord. And this has been so far the theme with Joshua, is that God tells him to do something, commands him to do something, and he obeys immediately. And we see it again in chapter 5, that Joshua listens to the Lord and circumcises the men. Now, there's much to say about uh, this uh, Old Testament uh, practice of circumcision. Uh, What we can say for our time today is that it is a visible external mark. Uh, For sure, it's an visible external mark. It is a sign. It is a sign. But the sign itself doesn't save The sign itself doesn't save. We just read in the passage that those that came out of Egypt were circumcised and yet they died in disobedience. They they were circumcised. The sign itself does not save. And think about even these men who were just delivered from the wilderness into the promised land. They just crossed over the Red Sea. And did they cross over the Red Sea uncircumcised or circumcised? We know that they were uncircumcised. They are being circumcised now on the other side. We even hear shades of this in uh, the book of Romans when Paul talks about Abraham who uh, believed and it was counted to him as righteousness, but when that happened, he was uncircumcised. He was only circumcised after he had received faith. So yes, circumcision was an act of obedience, God's people were called into this act of obedience as part of the covenant that he had made with them. This was a covenant renewal ceremony with the people of God. But God is going after something deeper. And that brings me to the second point this morning. God's men are cut, but God ultimately desires circumcised hearts. God's men are cut, but what God ultimately desires is circumcised hearts. There are several times in the Old Testament that God speaks about a heart that needs to be circumcised. We actually just heard that from Mary Hannah in Deuteronomy 30. That in order uh, for uh, God's people to love him with their whole heart and to love his law, their hearts need to be circumcised. You see, these men are cut on the outside of their bodies by Joshua, but we are cut on the inside 
our hearts are circumcised by our Joshua, whose name is Jesus. In fact, in the New Testament, we're told in, in Romans 2 that circumcision is a matter of the heart. That the whole idea of circumcision was to think about the heart, to know that the heart is where the Lord is after. And then we hear in Colossians, later on in the New Testament, uh, this is Colossians 2, verses 11 and 12. It says this, Paul writes, In him, in Jesus, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. We see very clearly that the circumcision of our hearts by Jesus Christ saves us. That is what saves. And the external sign of that reality is our baptism. What Christ does to us is in our hearts, and, and what we publicly proclaim as a sign is our baptism. That is the public proclamation. That, that is what we are saying when someone goes under in that trough here on a Sunday morning filled with water, that they've been buried with Christ. They've died with Christ and yet have been raised to new life as they come out of the water. So for us today, church, baptism is our act of obedience. This is why we say that if you have faith, if you've been saved, that the act of obedience after that is to be baptized. Does the act of baptism save you, though? No more than a Hebrew man submitting himself to be circumcised saves him. What, what matters is if you've submitted your heart to Christ, who removes the covering of sin over your heart. What matters is that you're united to Christ, who plunged into death for you and came out three days later in resurrected glory. There is, there is great temptation. I, f I feel like this has always been the case throughout the ages, but I would say in our culture today, there is uh, even further temptation to privatize our faith. To, to make our faith only about me and Jesus and the quiet of my own home. I don't take that out into the world. I don't, I don't let that leave the four walls of my home. Uh, the culture, our secular friends would, would say, yes, it's fine if you want to have faith, but just don't bring it out here into the public square. We, 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 you do what you want to do behind closed doors, but out here you don't talk about it. But friends, our, our faith, Christianity, is a public faith. So it's, it's not less than a per, uh, personal relationship with Jesus, but it is so much more than that. It, it disrupts the world. It, it stuns our critics. So there's no, there's no hiding behind closed doors. And our baptism is a very prominent sign of that. It is a very public Thing. It's a very public act of obedience that we are saying that we belong to him in our baptism. And we are saying that publicly. We're saying that we seek to love him. We're saying that we have circumcised hearts that want to love him and serve him. And that our circumcised hearts want to love our neighbors as ourselves. It tells a watching world that we obey King Jesus. Now, after the cutting comes celebrating. So skip down to verse 10 
as we see what the people of God are obedient to do after this circumcision. Joshua 5 verse 10 says this, While the people of Israel were encamped at Gigal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. Here's point number three. God's people celebrate with a feast and full hearts. God's people celebrate with a feast and full hearts. Like the Passover that their parents marked right before they walked through the Red Sea, these Israelites eat a Passover right after walking through the Jordan River. So again, we see this is a second exodus for the people of God. In, in this passage, uh, J- J- I could say it. Joshua, I almost said Jacob, not that J, but Joshua focuses on what the people are eating in this new land. And so you see a lot in that uh, passage that I just read about what they were eating and, and, and why they were eating it and when they were eating it. They ate the produce and grains from the land and, and now no longer were they given manna. Now, Many of you know that if you've read through Exodus and Deuteronomy and Numbers, that manna was food sent from heaven. Uh, it was uh, miraculous. Uh, in fact, if you uh, translate manna, it was just, what is this? Because it was so mysterious and miraculous that people didn't have a category for it, but it was sent from heaven to provide for the people in the desert food. But each day it melted. The people were asked and commanded to take the manna each day, and if they tried to store it or keep it, it would rot and melt. But now heaven has come to earth in a new way. The earth now itself flourishes with abundance. The wilderness exile is over. It's one of the the main signs that the, the era of the people of God wandering in the desert is over. The manna ceases, as we read, and the fruit of the land is what they eat from. Now, this story in Joshua 5, of course, anticipates another replacing of manna that would come in the New Testament. This replacing of manna by the bread of life is Jesus Christ. God provided food from heaven sent to earth in the Son of God. In fact, in John 6, Jesus reveals himself to being the always satisfying bread that came down from heaven. He is the new Passover meal, Jesus Christ. He says that partaking in his flesh will bring eternal life in full hearts. And so for us today, this is why we celebrate the Passover meal, but we call it the Lord's Supper. It's a new Passover meal. We do that every week here at City Church. You might have come from different backgrounds where you didn't take the Lord's Supper every week, but we are called, we feel very strongly called in obedience to take the meal as a covenant renewal ceremony here every Sunday morning. Like the people here in Joshua with full hearts enjoying the Passover meal, they are looking back to that first Passover. They, they, some of them maybe were children, but remember that. Most of them don't remember it from being there, but they've heard their parents talk about that first Passover before they passed through the Red Sea, knowing that God was faithful to deliver them from death. And then as they take this Passover meal in Joshua 5, they're also looking ahead 
You could see that. They're anticipating what's to come, that they're beginning to eat from the land and know that they'll have all their life to eat from the land, the fruit of the land. When we take the Lord's Supper, we, we too look back and look forward. We look back at our Passover lamb. We look back at Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross, his broken body and shed blood that saved us from death. We do two things. We look back and we look forward. We look forward to the meal that we will have with Jesus when we cross over into eternal life. We, we look forward to that meal in the new heavens and new earth and new Canaan when we will feast upon the, the flourishing of that land with our king in his presence forever. This is what we celebrate when we take the meal and we will do that in just a few minutes. Really, uh, Really thankful that two of my two of my closest friends are uh, published authors. Uh, just real neat. I don't know if any of you have had that experience where uh, a close friend has this incredible gift uh, and has published books. Uh, and these are two f- uh, fictional books, so you you can imagine how creative my friends are. Very much not like me. Uh, but when I read their books, it's it's very different from reading a book where I don't know the author. Um, and so being close friends to these guys, I've, I've heard them uh, talk about with excitement this idea for a book. I've, I've heard them uh, plan on what this book is going to look like and what the story is going to do. And I've even read manuscripts for part of the book. I've, I've been uh, walking alongside them in excitement as they, as they write the book. And then when it's finally published, being able to read their books and see their excitement. But for me, reading their books probably doesn't have as rich a meaning for you reading those same books. You see, when I, when I read my friends' books, who I love and treasure and have heard about what the God was stirring in their heart to write these books, you, you might say it has a rich meaning for me because of the covenant of friendship I have with these authors. For you, it might be a fun read, but for me, I celebrate my friends with every word I read because I know them and I love them. If you don't know Jesus, if you were to eat this bread and drink the cup, if you do not know Jesus, it has no meaning. It has no meaning beyond uh, just a paltry piece of bread and just a thimble of juice that will not satisfy you or do anything, but that is all that it is. But for the people of God who know and love the one who has prepared this meal for us, it represents so much more. Friends, God is after our hearts. He's after our hearts. Signs don't save you. If, if you do not know the Lord and you come and get a cup and the juice, that is not going to save you. You're called to examine your heart. We're all called to examine our hearts lest we be like the first generation of Israelites who took the Passover meal, who got circumcised, but they perished in the wilderness. The call is to turn from sin and turn to Christ, to trust in his saving grace, to know the forgiveness that he offers, to remember his baptism, to proclaim his death, and to enjoy new life with him in this age and the age to come. So, as we close, looking at this whole passage, 
considering where it is, right after the people of God have crossed over the Jordan, and right before taking the land, as I mentioned, the next chapter is the fall of Jericho, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks. But if we look at the, this passage as a whole, we might, we might ask, uh, what do these signs, what does circumcision and Passover have to do with verse 1 that we read at the very beginning? What does the Passover meal and circumcision, how does that even relate to the cowering, to the melted hearts of the Canaanites? Well, notice what it says at the end of verse 1. I want to draw your attention back to that. It says, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. The people of Israel. The people were obedient to follow Joshua's command to prepare to cross over the Jordan River. They listened to and followed God over the Jordan. And now they're obedient to circumcise the men and to observe the Passover. And it's exactly this obedience that scared the inhabitants of the land to death, literally. It's their obedience to God, God working through them in their obedience that scared the enemies of God to death. Friends, when the church is obedient and careful to do all that is written in the law of God, the enemies of God shudder with fear. When the power of the Holy Spirit is displayed in God's church in the careful hearing of and responding to God's word, Satan cowers because he knows he has no chance. He has no chance against the advancing kingdom of God. The Christian story haunts the world and Satan. The gospel truly is countercultural. This is why Mainline churches that water down the gospel or compromise it to the point that it's unrecognizable, Satan and his minions do not cower at such a church. The cowering that we see here in Joshua 5, the melted hearts leads to death, not repentance. And, And today, today and this morning and right now, we pray that there would be repentance And that is our call, that we would pray. We reread in this text, we know what's coming. If we've read the word of God, you can even sense it, that uh, we see Rahab and her response, that she has faith, that we would pray there would be another Rahab. We plead that someone else from this land would repent. And so we pray this morning that those who are walking opposed to God would repent. But we know that God's wrath will not be held at bay forever. And those who refuse to turn to him in faith will find that out in a terrible way. And I, I don't say that with a smile on my face. And I know that none of you would, would say such things with a smile on your face either. It's heartbreaking. We plead, we desire, God desires all the, to be saved And so, maybe you're here, maybe you've come, maybe you've come for the first time and you would say you you don't know Jesus. You, You would not say that you're a believer. Maybe you've come this morning curious about the things of Christianity. Maybe long ago you've read the Bible, maybe even grew up in church, but today you would say that Christianity is not for you. So my plea for you, unbeliever, is to repent 
and believe. I think of so many ways that we see this play out in the word of God, but one of the things that I thought of this week is the the two thieves on the cross on either side of Jesus when he's being crucified. One of them mocking the king of the Jews and the other one rebuking that thief saying, do you not fear God? Do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation and indeed justly for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But that thief says, as he points to Jesus, this man has done nothing wrong. You see, the, the thief on the cross understood the condemnation that he was standing under. He, he understood the condemnation that the other thief was standing over, and he's looking at that thief going, do you not fear God? Do you not fear this condemnation that's coming for you? But Jesus turned to that thief, the one that that spoke about Jesus doing no wrong. And Jesus says, truly, I say to you, you will be with me in paradise today. To my unbelieving friend, if you are here, may today be the day that you ask Jesus in faith to remember you. Would today be the day that you repent and respond in faith and believe the gospel and live? Would today be the day? And even if right now there's something stirring in your heart, if your mind is spinning, if you feel even a tinge of conviction in this area, please don't let today pass without speaking to one of us, speaking to me, speaking to Andrew. Any of us, a part of City Church, would love to share with you more the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Believe the gospel and live. And so as the people of God, one of the responses to such a, such a horrifying thought in verse 1, and then yet the encouragement of the obedience of God's people in verses 2 through 12, is that we have thanksgiving for God. We thank God for his grace and mercy to save us from his wrath. Because if it weren't for God, if it were not for his grace, we too would be sent into eternal punishment. We too would be cowering in fear. We would have melted hearts if it weren't for God. If it weren't for Jesus Christ on the cross who absorbed the wrath of God. Jesus absorbed the wrath of God a million times more brutal than what is coming for the Canaanites next week. And what was deserved of you and me, he did it for you and me. We even read in Psalm 22, that's a psalm that Jesus quotes from the cross, that his heart is like wax and melts. Jesus Christ had a melted heart on the cross because of what was happening to him as he takes on the punishment for all sin. Jesus' heart melted under God's wrath so that yours and mine would never have to. That's what he did for us. He is also our Passover lamb. He's the lamb that takes away the sin. He was baptized into death, but raised to new life to circumcise our hearts into salvation. What a savior. That's who he is. Let's pray to him now. Father, in Christ we speak to you by the power of the Holy Spirit, a triune God who out of love made us in your image. And we thank you that you've sent your son to be the propitiation for our sin. 
to absorb the wrath so justly deserved for sin. And so our heart breaks for those who right now are far from you, whose hearts have not been circumcised, whose hearts are still stone. Might you turn their hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, circumcised hearts that believe and trust and love you. And for us, whose hearts you have circumcised, we thank you. Something that we could have never done ourselves, that you had to do for us, and you did it in the person of Jesus Christ, in his life, being sent from heaven, being the Passover lamb to take away our sins, perfectly obedient all the way to the cross where he died for us. We are covered by his blood. And we know that death could not hold him, that he was raised to new life, and and those of us baptized into him have also found new life. And we celebrate new life. And we know we have new life now, and we will have fully realized, full, joyful lives without the presence of sin when you come for us again. And we feast with you then. And may we echo your scripture and say, Lord, come quickly. And we know that you will because you are a God that keeps your promises. And we thank you for that as we pray in Christ. Amen.